So it's that time of year when we break out the Christmas decorations, although my family hasn't even gotten our tree yet. I think we're going to try and remedy that tomorrow. Um, We've got the Christmas books out, uh, which actually just showed up at our house from storage at the Hodges house today. And of course, it's time for Christmas movies. So out of those three things, we've already started watching Christmas movies, of course. We watched Elf last night, which was great. Um, And one of the classics, of course, is Home Alone. We introduced this movie probably a little too early to Sophia and Stella last year. Actually, I know for sure a little too early. Uh, And I learned some things watching it again for the first time through a child eyes. First of all, blunt force trauma to the male reproductive area is not that funny over and over again. Um, It reminds me of like a Funniest Home Videos highlight reel. Uh, Second, I was shocked to see like how mean the siblings were to each other. I never noticed that before I had my own kids. And third, I wasn't prepared for the recurring nightmares Stella would have about bad guys coming in and breaking into the house or being left at home when Corey and I are going somewhere. Um, But if there's anything Home Alone does portray well, it's the sheer madness of the fast pace. Um, of our life, especially during this season. You know, in the, in the movie, you've got this large family in America. They live in New York City, and they're going to go to uh, Paris for Christmas. You know, just the normal thing Americans do, right? Whatever. But anyway, so Kevin, the eight-year-old, the star of the show, he's um, always into mischief, and he gets put in timeout the morning they're ready to catch the airport shuttle. So he's in timeout up in the attic. Everyone's in a rush, getting their bags packed, trying to catch the airport shuttle. It takes two vans to get this giant family to the airport. And in all the hustle and bustle, everyone thinks everyone else has got Kevin, and they don't realize that Kevin is still in timeout in the attic of their house until they're over the Atlantic Ocean. To make matters worse... They're, they're two hours or so away from Paris yet, so they can't even call till they get to the, to the ground. And then when they get to the ground, they find that there's a two-day wait just to get a flight back. Now, if you were to talk to Kevin's parents before this crazy madness of the holiday season, before leaving their eight-year-old son home, if you were to say, what are, what are the most important things to you in life? I would guess that it's somewhere in their top three most important things in life would probably be their kids. And if you were to say, could you ever imagine a scenario in which you leave a child behind and go to Europe without them? I'm sure they would say, in their best day, no, I could never imagine such a scenario. And yet, in the film, that's what happens when people get overextended. Now, actually, in my sermon, I have something like, we may never forget our children, but actually, uh, I, could, I could see a scenario in which that is true. Uh, I, I just... The crazier life gets, I can actually honestly say. And I know I th- some of you have probably done it. So anyway, I'm not going to point that out too, too hard. I have, as a, as a newer father, um, a few years back, I have taken my kids in the car and realized, oh, their car seat doesn't even buckle in. Um, and anyway, so things happen when we get overextended. Certainly, if you're not leaving your kids behind or forgetting people, at least the distraction, the busyness of the season it makes it difficult for us to remember what's really important. This being the second Sunday of Advent, we are preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We're preparing for Jesus uh, to come again to bring his kingdom in full. This is a season, Advent is a season of preparation to receive Jesus. How can we be prepared when it's also the season that tends to be one of the busiest and the most stressful of the year. Last week, we looked at the importance of making time to simply be silent, of, of doing away with the distractions, even for a small period each day. 
and allowing God to speak to us through his word. Building on that foundation of silence this evening, I want to introduce another practice of preparation. And it's a practice that's exemplified, it's modeled well by Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it's found in Luke chapter 2. So I want to encourage you to stand, if you're able, um, as I read the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 19. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. For a prayer to open this sermon, I want to read and pray, actually, uh, a collect of Thomas Cranmer. It goes like this. Blessed Lord, which has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now I've preached that section out of Luke 2 numerous times, but I have never preached it in Advent. That's because it's a Christmas text. And you may, if you're a liturgist, sit out there and say, you're not supposed to preach about stuff when Jesus is already born in Advent. Okay, so just let me, let me explain as we get going why I did this. Think of it as a movie that starts with the ending scene first, and then the rest of the two hours are flashbacks, only this won't be two hours, I promise. Okay. So in our story, where we pick it up, uh, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and out in the wilderness are these shepherds, they're, well, they're, they're shepherding, right? They're doing their thing, and they're watching their flocks when suddenly an angel appears and brings them good news of great joy for all people. He tells them of a baby born in a manger who is called Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord. Anyway, as soon as he tells them this, this angel is joined by a whole host of angels thousands of angels singing glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased 
It's an amazing sight, or so I imagine. Now, when the angels left, the shepherds left their whatever they were doing, and they realized something more important had broken into their world than just shepherding at that minute. They headed straight to Bethlehem to see this event that the angels had sang about. And when they got there, it was just as the angel had said. There's the baby wrapped in clothing, lying in a manger. There's Mary and Joseph. And so they share these amazing words from the angel and then from the multitude of angels' songs. And there were two reactions to the words of the shepherds. There was the, action, the reactions of the crowds who, it says, wondered at the, what the shepherds said. They were literally amazed. Lots of us are amazed about lots of things. Amazing things don't necessarily change us. Like, for example, I was amazed when we landed that craft on a speeding comet going like how many thousands of miles an hour? That's freaking amazing. How can you... Anyway, takes a lot of math. Kids, learn your math. That's not in my wheelhouse. But, I mean, that was amazing that they could do that. But I'm, like, kind of over it. It didn't really change my life. Like, it was really cool. It didn't change my life. Or the, yes, uh, was it yesterday, I guess? No, two days ago, uh, driving up Alabama Hill at night, and uh, actually could have been in the afternoon. I'm in winter here, but anyway, uh, going up, and the moon was just glowing. It was so full, and it was above the top of Alabama Hill, but it was just below these dark clouds, and it was, like, glowing. And Sophia, who knows that the sun always sets in the west, was arguing with me, no, that's not the moon, that's got to be the sun. I mean, it was so radiant and glorious, it was amazing. My life really isn't changed by that amazing scene. The people who heard the shepherds were amazed, but Mary, Mary had a different reaction. Let's take a look at what Mary did. First of all, Mary treasured these things in her heart, these sayings of the angels to the shepherds, the words being spoken about her son. She treasured them in her heart. And here's what Mary is not doing. She's not getting sentimental. She's not trying to hold on to a good feeling she had when the shepherds shared these things with her. First of all, in ancient thinking, the heart wasn't really a metaphor for good feelings and love, kind of like we think it is. Uh, our kids make hearts all the time, which means I love you, which means they feel warmly toward me. They don't write me hearts when I'm disciplining them or something like that. Okay? But in the ancient world, the heart was believed to be the core of a person. It was the place where your thoughts and information and feelings all come together, and out of the heart comes your will, your volition. It comes, the things that you say and the things that you do come out of the heart, that's why Jesus, by the way, in his adult ministry, was so big on changing the heart. Where the heart is bent, that's where your treasure is also. Mary treasured these things in her heart. The Greek word for treasure is sunetere, which means to protect, to defend, to keep in mind for careful consideration. Now, unlike the crowds who were simply amazed, a feeling that can come and go, Mary realized that what she had heard was somehow life-changing, maybe even world-changing, and although she didn't know how it was life or world-changing, she knew it was important enough to treasure, to hold on to, to protect. She treasures these things in her heart, and that's not all. And here we come to the second practice of Advent. Mary not only treasures the words of the shepherds, but she ponders them in her heart. That is the practice of contemplation. Contemplation, that's the second practice of Advent I want to talk about. Now, the Greek word behind the action of pondering or contemplation 
is sumbalusa. It comes from the root sumbalo. Can you say sumbalo? Great. You just said like the root verb of contemplation or pondering. Good for you. Sumbalo. Let me just talk a little bit about this word. The core of that word is balo, which means to throw. So think when I was learning Greek, I throw a ball. Balo means to throw. Yay, I got a Greek word. Okay, so balo, to throw or to cast. So when Jesus, think uh, when he's exercising a demon, he casts it out. It's ek, think exit, out, ek, balo. I throw it out or I cast it out. This word is sum balo. Sum, it's like the word sum, to bring together, to, to, to bring together, to throw together. Pondering, contemplation, is throwing things together. Literally, uh, to unite a group of things or a group of thoughts or a group of ideas. So Mary hears all these things and treasures them in her heart so later on she can throw them alongside each other. She can throw them together all of these things that she's picked up along the way. And naturally, I know that what you're thinking, what I'm thinking, right? Fellowship of the ring, of course, right? Uh, right? When Gandalf comes to realize that Bilbo's ring is more than just a magic ring, he doesn't quite know for sure what ring it is, but he knows it's more important than just like disappearing tricks. So he says, keep it secret. Keep it safe. He treasures it. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. I'm going to save it for a later time, but it's not to be out in the open. And then he does something else. While the ring is secret and safe, uh, while it's treasured, if you will, Gandalf goes out to gather information from various sources. He goes and gets word of mouth. He gets histories. He looks at maps. He even reads prophecies. He's practicing sumbalusa. He's throwing together all the bits of information and he's contemplating them. And only after this period of contemplation does he realize, da-da, the ring is the ring of power. Only after he sumbaluses, after he throws it all together and spends time with it, does he realize what he needs to do next. So, here's Mary treasuring these things in her heart, pondering them. Sumbalo, throwing them all together like a recipe, like mixing the ingredients. What kinds of things could she be throwing together? Well, maybe she began to ponder the words she had spoken about this miracle child of hers. Like the time Gabriel, the mighty angel, appeared before her declaring that she would be having a baby. What was it that he said? Oh yeah, he said that her son would be great and called son of the most high. Uh, the angel said something like, he would reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom would have no end. Maybe she threw those statements down alongside scripture, like the word of the Lord in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Or maybe she was also drawing on the reference to the everlasting kingdom of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, throwing things alongside each other. Or what about the words that the angel spoke to her fiancé, Joseph? You know, she probably thought it was strange when he decided to stick it out with her after she had been found to be pregnant without first being intimate with him in the first place. She knew the angel had said something to him, but it really, frankly, didn't matter. Whatever the angel said got him to stay with her. But come to think of it, when thrown down alongside the words of the shepherds and the angelic words spoken to her, what was that message the angel said to Joseph? Oh, yes, that this child would be fathered by the Holy Spirit. And this son, what was it? 
Oh, he would save people from their sins. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh my goodness, it's all coming together now. It's just like Isaiah spoke of. But that's impossible. How could my son be God with us? And what was it her relative, Elizabeth, had said? Mary went to visit her, uh, her, cousin, or her relative Elizabeth when Elizabeth was pregnant with John. And Mary herself was pregnant. And when she walked in to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth said, My child is jumping within me. It's leaping within me. And then Elizabeth said something that Mary had probably forgotten or thought was really weird. She said, How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? But you know, now that she's throwing all these words together alongside scripture in contemplation, Mary may have begun to connect the dots. But you know, it was more than just words that she's contemplating, don't you think? There's a social aspect. We, we don't just live in a vacuum where we hear words or we read words. We are people who live in this culture and this time and this gendered body that we're in. What was it that Mary was thinking what was she contemplating socially who were mary and joseph that such marvelous words would come to them that such an amazing story would sweep them up in its current mary was of no special status in fact she was unwed pregnant and engaged to a mere carpenter the savior of the world the son of god didn't make any sense being in her belly. And yet, if she were to throw that down, contemplate it alongside Scripture, she might think of other nobodies who became somebody because God decided to work through them. Who were Abraham and Sarah before God reached out to them? A couple of pagans in a land called Ur of the Chaldeans. Who was Hannah, but a childless woman of no special family, that is, until God gave her a son who would become the great prophet Samuel. And who was Ruth? Nothing but a Moabite widow, not even an Israelite, until God showed her favor and gave her a son named Obed, who would become the father of Jesse, who would become the father of the great King David himself. Yes, God is in the habit of doing great things through people who are not great in the eyes of the world's great. And when she was there at the manger, who came excitedly telling everyone about their encounter with the angels? Was it a representative from King Herod? No. Was it an ordained priest from the temple? Not even. Was it someone of a great noble family, at least someone who would be respectable in court? No, of course not. It was just the opposite, the angelic choir of heaven. I imagine the most beautiful voices I have never heard came and sang in the wilderness to a bunch of shepherds, men whose profession was considered the bottom of the social scale and a vocation that had a reputation for attracting the crude and foul-mouthed. And when you put all this down alongside each other in contemplation, Mary was beginning to see the bigger picture, that God is doing what he often does, going to the margins of society, moving among people who are desperate for him, rather than the smug and the comfortable who have no room in their schedules for such good news, let alone time to contemplate it. Ouch, what does that say about me? Would he come to me if he had something new to say? Or am I too comfortable in what I already know, too busy to listen anyway? 
So Mary had Scripture's words. She had people's words and angels' words. She had the social aspect of God working through the lowly. But contemplation takes all things into consideration and lays them all down alongside the other things. And so I wonder if Mary also considered her political climate. little history here. Rome was a republic until 510 B.C., until about 44 B.C. And during this time, Rome was governed, in theory at least, by a group of senators, kind of democratic in a way. But in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar took power from the Senate and became the dictator of Rome. Now, Julius Caesar had a problem. Well, a couple. Nobody liked him because of that, or very few. And he didn't have a son of his own. He didn't have an heir to his throne. And over the years, Julius Caesar took note of a grandnephew named Gaius Octavian, who he later adopted as his own son. And when Julius Caesar was betrayed and murdered, Rome entered a state of regional civil war, with various generals rising up and trying to take power for themselves. Octavian, this grandson, who, grandnephew, who had been um, adopted as Caesar's son, he entered the fray. And one by one by one, he squashed these generals and took their lands until finally he started ruling what would be known as the Roman Empire in 27 BC. Historians look back and generally say that the Roman Empire lasted from 27 BC to 284 AD. This is the time period which Jesus was born into. This is the time period that Mary is living in. It's one of her contextual pieces that she's got to throw down alongside these other words. Now, for those who are on Augustus Caesar's side, he was known as, and I'm not, these are titles that are written in history, he's known as the savior of the world. By crushing the rebellion, he secured relative peace throughout the Roman Empire, known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And when his adopted father, Julius Caesar, died, Augustus declared that his father should be remembered as a god. Of course, that's a political move. Why would you do that? Because what does that make Augustus? Son of God, right? Son of God. Then Augustus had historians write his biography. And do you know what he had them write about his own birth announcement? Writes that my birth and the year such and such was the good news. Literally, the euangelion in Greek, which we translate in our English as gospel. That's what Caesar said about himself. That his birth was the gospel or good news to the world. And when he crushed the rebellion um, formed by, and formed the Roman Empire, do you know how he referred to himself? The savior of the world. Now, do you think it is any coincidence that while Caesar, this guy who's so full of himself, calls him a son of God, prince of peace, calls himself savior of the world, uh, do you think it's any coincidence that when Jesus is born, the angels declare it as good news, called Jesus savior? So there's Mary, contemplating, throwing together the prophets and Bible stories. She's considered her social situation. She's living uh, in the political oppression of Rome and the tyrannical rule of Augustus. He is self-described as son of God, savior of the world, prince of peace. And you throw along all that stuff alongside good news and gospel announced by angels about her son and how he would be enthroned on the throne of David, the great king of Israel. 
that he would be the son of God and have an everlasting kingdom, that he would be the prince of peace, not just the peace of the elite in Caesar, Augustus's inner circle, but peace for all who place their faith in Jesus. Did Mary know all of that from her contemplative pondering? No, she couldn't know everything. She didn't know that Jesus would never give her grandchildren. And she didn't know that he would be crucified. And she didn't know that she, his own mother, would outlive him. And she couldn't have known what would happen after three days in the grave when he would burst forth in glory in an eternally risen body. But through contemplation, she knew enough for the time. She knew that however it played out, her son would be the agent of God to do the work of God among the people of God. She knew that he would, in effect, challenge and bring down rulers, that he would serve the hungry and bring wholeness to the broken. After all, she sang about these things. Before Jesus could ever talk, she sang what we know as the Magnificat. It's born out of contemplation. Listen to these words. My soul exalts in the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me as blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty things with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in, in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Sometimes there's a tendency when we think of contemplation to think of tranquility, maybe staring at our navels, someone in deep meditation and serenity. But biblical comp contemplation isn't an exercise in just emptying yourself. And it, sure, it surely isn't just a mental exercise in, in compiling a bunch of data like, like Sherlock's mind palace, if you've seen Sherlock. And if not, just let that go by you. Uh, it's, it's an exercise, yes, in being silent, yes, in emptying some of the noise, but also it's an exercise in listening to what God has to say, what God is up to. It's a throwing down of Scripture alongside all the things that are going on in your life. And it's placing all of those things going on in your life in submission to Scripture, saying these things, Lord, what do you see? What do you want me to see? How then should I think and live and be in this life that you've given me? See, what we see in those words I just read in, in Mary's Magnificat is that contemplating the Advent narrative does not lead to sentimental, cozy, individualized notions of eggnogs and, and, and tree lighting and stocking hungs by the fire. I, I love all those things, by the way. I love cozy. But that's not the biblical image that we're getting here. This image that we're getting of Mary's contemplation leads us to so much more. Because we hide in cozy. 
But the reality is that we live in a very broken world. And it's lost beyond human repair. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be salt and light and try. And we're called to try. As long as we know going in, we and ourselves and our human power cannot change all of the things that are broken. We can't fix it. And Mary's contemplation in these stories leads us to the unavoidable fact that in the midst of brokenness and darkness, God sent his son to save us from sin and to judge wickedness. Jesus came not to boost our economy through retail sales, but to knock the corrupt off their thrones and to exalt the humble and to feed the poor and to heal and to reconcile relationships. Amen? Anyone got any relationships that need reconciling? This son came to change the world as we know it. This Advent season, I challenge you to contemplate, to ponder, to throw down your life in front of the scriptures. Ponder, if you want a starting point, ponder the Magnificat. Throw down this announcement of Jesus with the rest of scripture, with the current situation in the world. See what God might say. Feel how he might want to change your heart. Receive his word to you for his church, for his world. Let's pray with me. Thank you, Lord, that you've continued to speak. Thank you that it, throughout history, throughout the history of the church, generation after generation, people who have taken the time to listen write of the glory of you speaking. Help us to listen, Lord. Help us to listen, to take the time to prepare our hearts by listening to you. Thank you, Lord, that the things that you have to say, while they're not always easy, are always good. Thank you for good news. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came not just to be a nice guy or to, to help us get through difficult times. You came to absolutely change this world. You came to wipe evil off the face of the earth. And, and before you do that, you are striving in your spirit and through your church to change evil hearts, Lord. Thank you for changing my evil heart and for continuing to sanctify me and us in this church. Thank you that you don't give up on us, Lord. That you came to rescue. Lord, in this season, help us to be more aware of both our need for rescue and your graciousness and power to do that rescue. Help us, Lord, to place our faith in you afresh.